Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here again tonight. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, but thank you for giving us your word. I pray that as we dig into your word tonight, it will edify us and encourage us, build us up in the faith, and let us know that in this life we are truly never alone and life only has meaning if we recognize you in the course of it. So bless this next hour as we look into your word. Bless it to our hearts. Give me the words to say and cause me not to say anything that would distract from the reality, the truth that we do find in your word. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. We give him the glory and honor forever. Amen. You may turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a fairly short chapter. We're going to look at chapters 6 and 7. 7 is an odd chapter division, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. I'm going to begin tonight the same way I began last week by saying that some of Ecclesiastes is kind of difficult to understand, and I say that because... Not only is there some peculiar phraseology, but if you go look at some of the major commentaries that are out there, which I have done, there's no unanimity of thought. There's no agreement. Everybody seems to find something else. And I'm just wanting to know what the language means. Just tell me what it is. Every once in a while, I'll run across something interesting. Like, for instance, did you know that in the Hebrew language, ancient Hebrew here especially, that there is no one-for-one equivalency between our English word sorrow. There is no Hebrew word that is an all-encompassing word for sorrow. Instead, there are 15 different words that are all translated sorrow. So when we get to chapter 7 and the English translations say sorrow, we got to go back and find out what kind of sorrow. What sorrow are we talking about? What type of word is Solomon actually using here? How does that reflect sorrow? That's the kind of thing I want to know. I want to know what do these words mean? What do these phrases mean? And I'm trying not to allegorize. I'm trying not to read into the text anything that's not there. But that as you read it in context, there are just phrases and statements that just sort of come out of left field. So I end up having to back up and say, now how does that apply to what's being said? With that in mind... By the time we get to chapter 6, verse 9, that is really the end of the first big section of Ecclesiastes. Everything that I've taught you from the book so far is the first section of the book. And in fact, it'll be the last time that you're going to see Solomon use the phrase, striving after the wind. That idea of boxing against the wind, that idea of utter futility. He is still going to say that some things are futile, but it's the last time he's going to talk about things that are just striving against the wind. And he's going to move into the next section of the book. And if I had to give it a theme, the next section of the book is about what we don't know and what we can't know. What we as human beings just can't understand when it comes to talking about an absolutely sovereign God. There's just stuff that God does that we just don't understand. 
And so Solomon is going to talk about that for a while. And the only way to understand the upcoming chapters, starting at chapter 7, well, really starting at chapter 6, verse 10. Remember earlier I said it's an odd chapter division. I would have moved that big 7 up to verse 10 of the previous chapter because that's really where the next section begins and where Solomon turns his attention back to what human beings can and cannot know. So those are the next big themes. Now, in chapter 5 last week, we saw Solomon say that God gives you your lot in life. And if he gives you plenty, if he takes care of you, if he gives you riches, if he gives you plenty to take care of you in this lifetime, that it's okay to enjoy it. Say thank you, recognize where it came from, recognize that it's God who gave you this particular lot in life, but the best you can do is just take it for what it's worth and enjoy it. And tonight, starting in chapter 6, because he's still thinking along those same lines, he's going to contrast what we read last week out of chapter 5, and he's going to say that there is an evil that happens under the sun in this lifetime. And that's somebody who really genuinely does have it all, but God, for one reason or another, in one way or another, makes sure that that man never gets to really enjoy all the good that he has. And Solomon's going to say, that's also evil. That's also vanity. So chapter 6 starts with examples of People having plenty in this life or living long life, but not being able to take full advantage of it, not being fully fed on it, never being satisfied with it. And then he says, those people who are like that, it would be better for them had they been stillborn. In fact, he's going to say that the stillborn child is better off than a man who lives 2,000 years and is never satisfied. So it's a very big contrast that he's drawing. And again, he's getting back to that main theme of contentment. You need to be content with your life such as it is, because this is the life that God has determined for you. Whoever you are, whatever you're like, however tall you are, however much hair you do or don't have, however much money you do or don't have. This is what God has determined for you, and you can go through the rest of your life, this phrase that I keep using, beating your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty and be dissatisfied and unhappy for the rest of your life. Or you can recognize that God has provided what he has provided for you and enjoy it. Now, I'm sure everybody in this room can think of somebody who's just never satisfied. It's never enough. They're never thankful. And so no matter what they get, no matter how much they have, they never really are satisfied by it. And that's what he's going to begin describing here at the top of chapter 6. Here's what he says. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. The NASB says it is prevalent among men What it really means is it's an oppression that happens here under the sun among people. But it happens all the time. It is a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Oh, well, how can that be bad? God has given him everything he wants. Kind of sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? A person who has everything. But God has not empowered him to eat from them. Now let me say that that word eat there, the NASB translates it eat, doesn't mean physical eating the way you might eat an apple or eat some spaghetti. What it means is that he's not satisfied by it that he hasn't really taken it in, ingested it, live off it, and be satisfied by it. And you'll see that in just a moment. So this is an evil that is prevalent among men, a man whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, but 
God has not empowered him to live from them, to ingest them, to be satisfied by them, but then a foreigner does enjoy them. That word foreigner doesn't mean non-Jew, somebody of a different race. What it means is not him. It's just somebody else, a stranger to him, actually gets to enjoy them. So he spent his whole life. Do you remember last week that Solomon gave us the example of a person who doesn't have an heir, who doesn't have a son or a brother, and yet he spends his whole life in greed, amassing more and more and more stuff. And then he dies, and his stuff just goes to whoever. Well, that's kind of what he's talking about here. A man who gets everything, gets all the riches, gets all the wealth. And because God is sovereign and God determines who gets what, God allows that this man gets all the riches, all the wealth, all the stuff. Everything his heart desires, everything his soul wants, he gets it. But God, in a sort of punishment, makes sure that that man doesn't ever get satisfied with it. He never eats of it. And then on top of that, a stranger to him gets to enjoy it. For a foreigner enjoys all those things. And this is vanity, and this is a severe affliction. Now, as you read through commentaries, they will argue about whether the next three verses are connected to the first two verses, or is it a brand new thought? I think they're connected. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, he's really tired. Oh, I'm sorry. All he does all day is go, stop it. Put that down. Quit it. A hundred children. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied With the good things, see, that's why I think it's connected to verse 2. God has allowed a man to have everything he desires, all the good things, but God has not empowered him to eat from them. Okay, same idea here. There's a man with a 100 children, and in the Middle East in those days, children were a gift from the Lord. Children were part of how you knew that you were going to be taken care of as you got older. Now, he's got a 100 children who are all going to get out there and work someday and all take care of mom and dad. So this man should really be secure. And if he has a 100 children, then it's pretty guaranteed that he's a relatively rich man. He's doing okay, especially if he can put them all to work and they're all working as a group. And yet, this man, who has a 100 children and lives many years, however many they may be, his soul is not satisfied with the good things that he has. He does not even have, the NASB throws the word proper in there, but you'll notice it's in italics, meaning it's added by the translator. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a proper burial. It just says, and he does not even have a burial. I think in the next verse you're going to see that what he's describing is somebody who lives and lives and lives and keeps living. Just dad won't die. He's got all the children. He's got the wealth, he's got the good things, and he's got a very long life. Everything is going for him, but he's never satisfied. He's not satisfied with the good things. Well, then in that case, Solomon says, then I say a miscarriage is better than he is. A miscarriage is better off. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 4, for it, the miscarried child, comes in futility and goes into obscurity. And its name is covered in obscurity. Nobody ever knows him. Nobody ever interacts with him. He doesn't know the the joys and the pitfalls of life. And he says that is actually better. The same way he said before, it's better to just not be than to be, have everything, and be dissatisfied. If you're not satisfied... If you're not content with what you've got, you'll go through your whole life in futility, boxing with the wind, angry at your circumstances, angry with God for putting you in these circumstances, 
So you're really better off to have never engaged in all that stuff. You'd have been better off to just not be born. That's how bad it is to not be satisfied with what God has given you. Have you gotten up any day and looked around and said, yeah, this is good. I have a roof over my head. I got food in the fridge. I got a fridge. And on top of that, there's food in the fridge. I got food in the pantry. I got clothes. I got stuff. God has taken care of me. Even through the difficult circumstances, Solomon's going to get into this in a minute, even in the difficult circumstances, God is still taking care of you and providing for you. And so if you go through your life dissatisfied, number one, nothing's going to change. All you're going to do is be whiny and complaining and people aren't going to want to be around you. But nothing's going to change. And secondarily, you're going to spend your whole life becoming sick, getting ulcers like we talked about last week, and never enjoying your life. You've had your whole life and you've had stuff in your life and you've never enjoyed it. There's a story, I will pass it on to you, it's probably an apocryphal story. There was a preacher, a relatively poor preacher, who went to see a billionaire. And the fellow, the one who arranged for the preacher to come see the billionaire, was walking around showing the preacher, look at all this stuff he's got. They're walking around his mansion. Look at this stuff. Look, at, isn't this impressive? And the preacher says, I'm not impressed. And he says, why? Why are you not impressed? Look at all this stuff this guy's got. And the preacher says, I got one thing he doesn't have. The guy says, what is that that you have that the billionaire doesn't have that keeps you from being impressed with everything he's got? And he says, I've got enough. (laughs) Because the billionaire, it's never good enough. It's always more. I always want more. I always want more. But the preacher who's satisfied with what he's got can say every day, God took care of me. I've got enough. Well, that's kind of what Solomon's getting at here. If a man fathers a hundred children, and if he lives many years however many they might be, but his soul is not satisfied with the good things and he does not even have a burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything and it's better off than the man who has everything And is never satisfied. Even if, verse 6, he's still talking about this man. Even if the man lives a thousand years twice. That's what he means by doesn't even have a burial. He just keeps living and living and living. Even if he lives a thousand years twice. So he lives to be 2,000 years old. He gets 2,000 years on this planet under the sun. Even if he lives that long and does not enjoy the good things, then do not all go into the one same place. Even the stillborn child goes to the grave, and even the man who lives 2,000 years but never enjoys anything goes to the grave, and they're both going to end up before God. And the child, I'm extrapolating on Solomon's thought here, and the child who had nothing in this lifetime, isn't going to have to argue his case before God. But the man who lived 2,000 years and had everything and was never happy, how is God going to view him? You know, last week I gave you the example of how my children used to get too much for Christmas. So they would forget about the first gift. By the time they got to the 20th, they couldn't remember what the first was. That used to frustrate me. So how many of you as parents, we have a few parents in the room, how many of you as parents enjoy it when your children are never grateful for anything they get? Yeah, uh, don't you enjoy that, Sandy, when, when you give your kids something or you take them out to dinner or you, or, hey, let's go to the circus or you, you take them to something and they get whiny about it. 
How does that make you feel? So now extrapolate that out to God. God gives you everything every day. Gives you everything you've got from the minute you wake up to you go to sleep that night. And while you're asleep, he's even providing angels to watch over you. He gives you food. He gives you a right mind. He gives you clothes. He gives you a house. And we have the nerve to rather than be satisfied with what he's given us to go back and complain. Now, if we know enough to know that we don't like it when our children act like that, what must God think when we (laughs) act like that? So then in verse 7, he says, all a man's labor is for his mouth. Remember the earlier reference to eating? He said there's a man who has everything, but God doesn't empower him to eat from it. And I said, I don't mean physical eating, like eating spaghetti or something. Same thing in verse 7. A man's labor is for his mouth. He's not just talking about eating some food. He does all his labor just so he can get some food. Now, yes, it's true that food was a very important commodity. In the times when Solomon was talking, I've said many times to you that 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, certainly 3,000 years ago, back in Solomon's time, the chief thing that you had to do every day when you woke up was find food. That's, that's number one on your list of things to do. Get food. Get something to drink. Find food. These days, we don't feel that pressure because we have refrigerators and drive throughs and restaurants. And so the necessity to find food doesn't seem as pressing. But I think Solomon's talking about something even larger here where he's saying all of man's labor is for his mouth and yet his appetite is not satisfied. He's not saying that a man who gorges himself still has an appetite. What he's saying is all of man's labor is for the good of himself, to spend on himself, to make himself comfortable to get himself clothes and food and whatever they're getting, they're getting it for themselves. And he says, and yet their appetite's not satisfied. It's the same theme. He's saying the same thing over and over again, that some people are never, ever satisfied. They could have everything. They could have the desires of their heart, and yet they're not satisfied. Yes, sir. I, I think part of that first sentence in all the toil of man is for his mouth. It's also for the guy to be able to say, well, let me tell you about how great I am. And if he doesn't have anything to do that, then, then we're just talking about spaghetti. Well, that, yeah, and th- that's coming up in a minute because he's going to also bring up the foolish words again. So you might very well be right. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Humans always want more. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? And what advantage does the poor man have? Now, if I were translating that, and there are a couple translations that do this, they put the question mark after the second word have so that the last phrase is sort of an answer to the question. That would be read like this. Remembering again that there is no punctuation in the original Hebrew, not like our American punctuation. It would be, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? And what does the poor man have? Question mark. Well, then the thing he has is he knows how to walk before the living. He knows how to get by in this life. The poor man knows how to walk out his life because every day he has to eke out his living. He has to find his food, whereas the rich man can go through his whole life never being satisfied. So then he's going to talk about what advantage a wise man has over a fool. What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. Okay, if you walk out with nothing else tonight, if I sound like I'm just rambling away up here to you, remember that phrase, because that's actually a modern colloquialism. The modern colloquialism is a bird in the hand 
it's worth two in the bush. What you've got in your hand is better than what you don't have. And that's exactly what Solomon says. What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. In other words, look around. What you see, what you have, what's in front of you, what's in your house, what's in your fridge, what's in your closet, all of that is better than what you desire that you don't have. All the things you're thinking about. Because those things you're thinking about that you don't have are the things that you're obsessing over that keep you unhappy, discontent with what you do have. It's better to look around at what you do have and say, I am really, really fortunate. I am really well cared for. Look at how much stuff I have. Pardon me? Well, I didn't say it. That was Solomon that said that, but yeah. It's much better to be satisfied. We have so much stuff. And I'm speaking when I say we. At this moment, I mean Janine and I. We have so much stuff that we have a a bag of clothes in our trunk right now that we're going to take to Goodwill and give to somebody else. Because Janine cleaned out her closet. You didn't know I was going to use that as an example tonight, but she has so many clothes that she was able to say, I don't really need all these clothes. I'm going to give some away. So she was satisfied with what she could see rather than standing in a full closet going, I got nothing to wear. I just can't find anything here that makes me happy. What was that giggle about? Did I strike a nerve? (laughs) If we could go through our life fostering that kind of thinking, if we could engage in that, if we could teach ourselves, if we could learn to look at the things that we have and be grateful instead of spending our time thinking about what we don't have, what we wish we had, what we're planning to get, and that'll probably be a compromise from the one I really want. Just think how much happier we'd be. Think how much more satisfied we'd be And think how much more grateful we'd be. And think what our relationship with God would be. Because he, as our father, knows that he's given us all the stuff that we're standing in the middle of. All of these gifts, these riches, these things he has graciously given us. We're standing in the middle of it. And he hears us complain about what we don't have. What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. That idea of desiring what you don't have, he says, this too is futility and striving after wind. How many of you have been striving after the wind lately? (laughs) How many of you have been engaging in futility lately? How many of you have been able... To wish for something, and it just happens. Yeah, none of you. That's right. Instead, what you do is spend your time in the idleness of wishing for what you don't have. And while you're busy wishing for what you don't have, you're completely ignoring what you do have. And that is the end of what I'm calling the first big section of Ecclesiastes. It's almost like... Solomon has kind of exhausted that subject, and now he wants to turn to what men can and cannot know, given everything that he's taught us so far, and given that God is completely sovereign and in control. He's hinted at it by saying, to everything there's a time and a purpose to everything under heaven. He's already told us that God lays out everything after his own sovereign will, but now he's going to use that as the basis for how to live a better life. And he's going to start speaking almost proverbially. I mean, it's almost like thought after thought after thought of how you can live a more satisfied life. If you go to... uh, Most Christian bookstores right now. The shelves are just packed with self-help books and uh, how to live better life books, including your best life now. 
all the books that are just trying to tell you how to live a more satisfied life. If you would just read the Bible, pay attention to what it says, and follow its prescription, you'll live a better life. And so now Solomon is going to give you some clues as to how to live a more satisfied life. And you know what the root of it is? Recognize God. If you recognize God in every aspect of your life, you'll become satisfied with your life. So he says, and this seems like a weird juxtaposition after having said what the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. Verse 10 says, whatever exists has already been named. In other words, everything that you look around and see, God created it. He already knows what it is. He already named it. Do you know the names of every star? God does. Do you know how many hairs are on your head? God does. Everything that's already been, Solomon said earlier, everything that is and has already been, God demands it now. God who is in charge of time and lives outside of time has no difficulty calling things of the future as if they already are and calling things of the past and bringing them to once again give an answer for themselves. So from that perspective, he says again, whatever exists has already been named and it is known, apparently by God, what a man is. God knows. He knows what you're like. He knows your dissatisfactions. He knows when you're complaining. He knows if you're never satisfied. He knows if you're not happy. He knows what he's given you. He knows you're a sinner. He knows what's going on in your depraved heart. He's absolutely sovereign given the fact that whatever exists has already been named. And it is known what a man is. For he, the man, cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Anybody tried to fight with God lately? I used to do it on a regular basis. I used to just get so frustrated with God. And I would argue with him. And you know how many times I'd win the argument? None. Not a one. Zero. It never went good for me. God would let me... uh, that's right, he'll throw your hip out of joint. <laughs> no, God used to let me argue till I got a good whiff of myself, and then he would basically do that and just squash me for a while. And then I'd go, okay, I'm sorry, I give, I'd cry uncle, I'd cry father, <laughs> I'd cry savior. He'd let me up, and it was almost like he was saying, all right, come on, let's try this again. It's... And that's what Solomon's getting at. You can't dispute with the one who's stronger than you are. You can't dispute with the one who has already named absolutely everything, which means he calls everything by name. He knows everything that is. Everything that exists has already been claimed. He already has named it. He already knows it. And he knows what a man is because a man is one of his creatures. He's already named it. He's already claimed it. He's already determined what a man's lifespan is going to be and where he's going to live and how tall he's going to be. And you can't dispute with him because he's stronger than you are. Here's where the words come up, Tom. For there are many words which increase futility. I believe that that's connected to the idea of fighting with God. That's why I said I used to fight with God. You know how many times I won? Never. That's the idea. You can spill out your words. You can argue. You can make your claims. You can say this isn't fair. You can stomp your feet and whine and complain to God. And all it is is a bunch of words that just increase futility because, as I've already said, you're just beating your head against the brick wall of God's absolute sovereignty. Nothing's going to change. But you're going to just be unhappy and complaining in many words. And do you remember what Solomon said was the sure evidence of a fool? Many words. Lots of talking. He said, that's how you can tell a fool. He just keeps talking. So if you're dealing with God and you want to show God 
that you're not satisfied, you're not happy, you don't think he's doing things the right way, you think you have better ideas than he has, then go and spill your words to him. And Solomon says, that's just another sign of your futility. You're going to accomplish nothing. You're just going to look the fool. Whatever exists has already been named. And it is known what a man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life? Who knows what's good for a man? When my kids were little and they would want to, I'm going to pick something, they want to eat cookies before dinner. I would say no to them. And they would argue back with me because they wanted to get smacked. And they would argue, no, no, just seeing if you're listening. They would argue they want the cookies, but I want the cookies, give me the cookies, cookies. Which is why we always kept them on high shelves where they couldn't get to. And I would say, no, no. And they couldn't understand. I was the big meanie. I was the bad guy who would not give them cookies when I knew dinner was in 15 minutes. I was the big bad guy. And they would ask me, what? why, Dad, why? And you know what the answer was? Because I know what's good for you. I know that if you eat cookies now, it's going to spoil your dinner, and that's not a good way for you to eat. You need to eat your dinner. Afterwards, you can have some cookies. I know what's good for you. Dad, can we play in the street? Get out of the street. Why? Because I know what's good for you. There's cars coming, and you're not quick enough to get out of the way, and people speed through this neighborhood. I know what's good for you. Get out of the street. Get down from that tree. Why are you so high up in that tree? Get down low. Why? Because I know what's good for you. That that was that one. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That's why I thought of it. (laughs) Like a monkey up there. Because I know what's good for you. You're going to break something. And if you fall and break both your legs, don't you come running to me. And what an old joke. And I went for it anyway. (laughs) And people laughed. The whole point is we as parents, we as, what did Greg Wren say this Sunday? Quoting Jesus, if you who are evil know how to give good things to your children. How much more your father in heaven? Okay, well, we who are just human beings know enough to protect our children, enough to say, I know what's good for you. You don't know. I know. So that's why I do the things I do, even though you don't understand them. That's what Solomon's getting at here. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life? You don't know what's good for you. God knows what's good for you. You might think what's good for you is a Harley. I need a Harley and a Ski-Doo and I need a... Jet, and I need, you know, I've got all these desires for all these things I don't have. I know what I need. I know what I want. You don't have those, even though you're discontent with it. You, your desires go beyond what you can see. You don't have those things because God knows you couldn't handle those things. God, who's in the enterprise of making sure you get all the way from here to your predestined glory, He's going to make sure that nothing along the way ruins you. He knows what's good for you. He knows how much of what you can handle without being destroyed by it. He knows what's good for you in this lifetime and whether it's necessary for you to be sick for a while and lay down, whether your faith needs to be increased, whether he needs to get you back into the word and back on your knees where you belong. He knows what is good for you in this lifetime. He knows you need food. Jesus said it. Jesus said, your father in heaven knows what things you have need of. He knows you need something to eat. He knows you need something to drink. He knows that. You need something to wear. He's got it. He promised you food and raiment. He's going to take care of you. He knows what you need in this lifetime. So think about it. 
If you've got an almighty, omnipotent, all-sovereign God who also knows what you need and it's his good pleasure to give you the things that you need, then as you look around at the things you have, do you really need more than what you've got? The answer is no. You don't need more. If you needed something else, you'd have it because your father knows what you have need of. But you don't have the things that you crave and desire. Why? Because God doesn't think they're good for you. So, who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them those things that he thinks he wants, those things that he craves, those things he desires, he will spend them like a shadow. They'll be gone. For who can tell a man what will be after him in this lifetime under the sun here on this planet? So how many folks can say with absolute specificity and complete surety that you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Anybody ever had anything happen to them that you didn't see coming? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just stuff happens out of nowhere, and you go, this isn't what I planned. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. I was just pulling into my house, and I got hit by a car, and I, I got, that was Carol's circumstance. She didn't know that was coming. It happened. I didn't plan my concussion. I woke up in the hospital. Things happen you don't see coming. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. He knows, and you don't know what's even good for you to get through tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So considering the amount that you don't know, why should you be in charge? <laughs> why should you be in charge of your life if you don't know anything? Well, then God who does know knows what's good for a man in his lifetime, and he knows that the other stuff, no matter what the stuff, is going to be gone when you die. Like a shadow, it's going to disappear. And who can tell a man what's going to be after him? You don't know what's going to be after you. You don't know what's going to happen to the stuff you have right now. The stuff that God has given you right now in your life right now, if you die tomorrow, you don't know where that stuff's going to go. You don't know. God knows. So are you getting a sense for what Solomon is driving at? Again, the root is be content. Be satisfied with what you have. Be happy over the things that God has given you. He's given you food. He's given you work. He's given you clothing. He, he's provided for you, and whatever he provides for you is what he has determined is appropriate for you. And even if you can think of all kinds of things that you don't have in your life, thinking about them and whining to God about them is just an exercise in futility because that's not going to produce them. That's not going to make it no matter what the name and claim it people say. Just because you say you need things, you're not necessarily going to get those things. And you can spend the whole rest of your life unhappy, dissatisfied, angry at God, angry at life. Or you can just recognize that sovereign God has put you right here, right now, and given you this set of circumstances and this set of stuff. And you can look at it and say, look at all the stuff I have. God has really been good to me. And be happy for it. So starting in chapter 7 now, he's going to start telling you how to be more satisfied, given that you've got so much in your life. I have a couple of minutes left. Where we may not make it through chapter 7, but we'll, we'll make a good dent in it. A good name is better than a good ointment. Boy, that's an odd phrase. But in the Middle East, where there wasn't a lot of water, people couldn't take showers every day. In order to keep themselves smelling good, they would use oils and ointments. You may recall the story of the woman who broke an alabaster box, a very precious spikenard oil ointment on Jesus. And it says the whole house was filled with the fragrance of it. And she put it in, her, in his hair and on his feet so that he would have that sweet aroma to him. 
Well, that's the idea of the ointments, that you would go buy really expensive, really precious ointments to make yourself more attractive and less offensive to other people. And he says, but you know what? That's not really what makes you attractive. What really makes you attractive is that you have a good reputation. If people who know you know you have a good name, that you're trustworthy, that you're an upstanding guy, that you're satisfied, you're a content person, that's actually more attractive than being a good-smelling person. That's what that phrase means. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. You have to kind of keep reading to get the sense, but I'm going to tell you what I think he's getting at here. It's not just in a random way, it's better to die than to be born. What he's saying in the context of having a good name is, it's better to have lived with a good reputation and then died with that good reputation rather than the day of your birth when nobody knows what your reputation's going to be yet, what your activity's going to be like yet. So it's better to live your life in a way where you have a good name, a good rep among your peers. That's a better thing to die that way than to live or be born and nobody knows what's going to become of you yet. I think you'll get that sense as he continues here. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. He's making the same comparison here. The house of mourning has to do with people being serious, people being sober, people thinking about the stuff of life, as opposed to the house of feasting, which is just merrymaking and song and lots of food and and all kinds of wild activity where nobody's really giving any thought to what they're doing. It's better to think about your life. It's better to live your life in a sober, intelligent way than to live your life in a completely haphazard way. It is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. This, again, is that contrast between life and death. He's making life and death contrasts here. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. The house of mourning, the house of feasting. It's living, dying, living, dying. With that in mind, he says that's the end of every man. That would be the death part. Every man goes to the grave. He's already established that. And the ones who are still living, by contrast, take it to heart. Think about it. Understand that everybody's going to the grave. Death is the great equalizer. Doesn't matter if you're the richest king or the poorest man on the planet. In the end, you're all going to end up in the grave and you're all going to stand before God. While you're living, while you're still alive, while you're still here on this planet, still under the sun, he says the living need to think about that. Need to give some thought to the fact that the end of every man is ultimately going to the grave and then standing before God. Verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter. There's that word sorrow that I talked about earlier. He doesn't mean crying all the time. He doesn't mean I'm so depressed constantly, and yet that's better than laughter. That's not what he's saying. This word sorrow right here means to be sober, to keep a, a sane mind to look at life for what it is and to have that sobriety to you. It's better to think. That is the theme of each of these verses. It is better to think about your life, be sober in your thoughts about your life, rather than just taking your life haphazardly. Soberness, that form of sorrow, is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. In other words, when you're thinking about your life and you recognize who God is and his sovereignty and what he's given you and you're content with your life, that's going to lead to a happy heart. That's going to lead to satisfaction in this life. Verse 4. 
the mind of the wise is in that house of mourning or that house of sober thought, while the mind of a fool is in the house of pleasure. All he did was add houses this time. He said, a smart man thinks about stuff. A wise man considers his life. And that consideration takes the form of what he's already told us. He spent the first six chapters telling us the difference between wisdom and being a fool. And the difference is the fool is never satisfied. And so he talks and talks and talks about how unsatisfied he is, proving that he's foolish. Whereas the intelligent person looks at what God has given him and is satisfied with what God has given him. And so now he's just saying in a different way, the mind of the wise, the thinking of a wise person is in the house of sobriety, the house of mourning, the house of serious thought, while the mind of a fool is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. The word song there, first let's talk about that. The word song there does not mean jaunty little ditties like we have sometimes on Sunday mornings. It's not la-di-da-da-da-di-da-da-da. -da -da -da. That's not the idea. The idea of a song is like the Song of Solomon, which is in the Bible. What it is is a recitation. What it is is a story, a tale. And that was the way that the word song was originally used. So there can be the talk, the story, the tale that's told by a fool, which is entertaining, which is exciting to listen to, which is why people still flock to movies, you know, and just go and entertain themselves for a while with another story, another song, that idea. But then on the other hand, nobody likes it when they're rebuked. Nobody likes it when somebody says, now you're wrong about that. Solomon says, if it's a wise man that's doing the rebuking, you're better off listening to the rebuke of a wise man than you are going to hear the song of some fool. You got the idea? Are you familiar with the word amuse? Yes. Amusement is a very big thing right now. In fact, we have amusement parks. We go to all kinds of films and concerts and everything else, and we refer to them as forms of amusement. Muse is to think. That's what that word means. Amusement is to be away from thought. Alpha negative, the opposite of thinking. Amusement means stop thinking and just be amused. Well, that's essentially what he's getting at here. That if you go to the amusement, to the song, to the performance of the fools, it might feel good, but that's empty. It doesn't improve you. It doesn't help you in life. But if you listen to wise men, even if they rebuke you, your life improves by the fact that they are helping you think. Think more wisely. Think more intelligently about your life. For as the crackling of a thorn bush is under a pot... So is the laughter of a fool, the joy, the laughter, the, the amusement, the yay, he said, is like the idea of, of thorn bushes under a pot is if you wanted to boil a pot, if you had a pot of water that you needed to boil quickly, you could go get thorn bushes because they burn real quickly. They burn fast and they heat up quickly and they crackle away as they burn and then they become nothing. They're just ash. And so he says, that the laughter of a fool is like that. It suddenly heats up, it suddenly crackles a lot, it's kind of, hey, and then it's nothing, it's gone. It burned up, it's gone. For as the crackling of a thorn bush under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool, and this too is futility. For oppression, remember, we've been talking about Solomon saying, I've seen oppression on the earth. I have seen people who are well-to-do who oppress the poor. But then even the person who's doing the oppressing has somebody over him who oppresses him. And even that person is oppressed by somebody else all the way up to the king. And the king is reliant on the food that's made by the person who's lowest rung on that ladder, who's getting the most oppression. So it sort of goes in this great big circle. Now he's going to bring up oppression again. Verse 7, for oppression 
makes a wise man crazy. The NASB says makes him mad. It doesn't mean it makes him angry. It's the word for just drives him out of his mind. If you're a wise person and you view the world and you see the oppression and the many levels of oppression, after a while you just, it drives you mad, it drives you crazy. And especially if you're the person who's being oppressed, that will get to you, that will just drive you mad. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Who do you bribe? You don't bribe poor people. You bribe people who are judges, kings, somebody who's in power or in authority. That's who you can bribe. So both sides of that statement, whether it's the oppression of the poor or a rich man taking a bribe, on either side of that, Solomon is saying, those things are wrong. That's not the correct way to treat people. That's not the correct way to live. And the end of a matter, says verse 8, is better than its beginning. In other words, when you get to the end of a dispute, it's finally settled. But when you start the dispute, that's not the good place. The good place is when the dispute is finished. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. We're going to end on this, the last half of verse 8. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. That's still true today, as is all of this stuff. Don't you enjoy meeting somebody who's spiritually superior to you and make sure you know it? Isn't that fun? Isn't it great when somebody judges you and says something to you like, I thought you were a Christian. Don't you love hanging out with those people? Isn't that fun? Haughtiness of spirit. I've seen it so many places. People who think that they're either more loved by God or more spiritually adept than you are, more tuned into the Bible than you are, or even worse, the people who say, I don't need the Bible. I'm that spiritual. I get mine directly from God. I had a girl once tell me, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm spiritual. Like being spiritual somehow made up for her lack of faith in Christ. This is all spiritual haughtiness. And that haughtiness of spirit is very, very unlikable to other human beings. You can only imagine what it's like for God. This Sunday, as we continue through the book of Romans, we're going to get to Paul saying, should we sin all the more? that grace may abound. Now that we know that we're being saved by grace, and now that we know that grace covers this whole multitude of sins, in order to give grace lots of opportunity, should we sin all the more? I'm going to go in there and I'm going to sin like crazy so that God's got something to really forgive because that'll make God look really gracious and I'm really doing that for God's sake. See the logic? Okay, well, the answer, of course, to that is David saying, save me from my presumptuous sin. Because presumptuous sin is when you say, I can do this, I can get away with this because God saves me by grace. And since it's all under the blood, you know, he's going to have to forgive me. So even though I know this is wrong, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Okay, where does that come from? Where does that thinking come from? It comes from a haughtiness of spirit. It comes from that attitude of, well, I just, I know my stuff. I know what God's doing in my life. I know the relationship I've got with God. I'm one of God's favorite people. Otherwise, I wouldn't be like this. And I need to tell you what's wrong with you. I need to Get all those splinters out of your own eye, even though I don't notice this giant beam sticking out of the side of my head. I enjoy that image a lot. It was very Three Stooges. It was very smacking people in the side of the head every time you turn your head. Because you got this great big beam out of the side of your head, but you're busy telling everybody else they got a splinter in their eye. The Bible brings this theme up over and over again, which is why I'm citing different examples of it from the Old and New Testament. This idea of spiritual haughtiness, this spiritual one-upmanship, this spiritual superiority, 
It's just a bad thing all the way through the Bible. Consistently, it says, don't be like that. What's better than that? Patience of spirit. What does patience of spirit look like? It looks like what Paul said, what we talked about at men's group last time, that the person who is fully grown and mature in their Christianity, who has their freedom in Christ, he'll actually limit his own freedom in Christ for the sake of his weaker brother. That's patience in spirit. The person who recognizes that everybody struggles. And so when they see somebody struggling, instead of pouncing on them and saying something stupid to them like, well, that wouldn't happen to you if you had more faith. You must not have much faith or this wouldn't have happened to you. I've heard that more times than I can shake a stick at. And I don't know why I'd shake a stick at something I've heard. Let me mix some more metaphors for you. (laughs) But I've heard that so much in my life. You know, this wouldn't be happening to you if you just had more faith, more faith. The problem is you. All the faith healers out there in the world who say, I can heal you. And then people come up on stage, desperate, sick people come up on stage and they say some Moomala Boomala incantations over them and then put their hand on their head and the person goes home no better than they were when they got there and the faith healer will say that's your fault you didn't have enough faith in other words they blame the desperately sick person that's spiritual haughtiness it's exactly what that is patience of spirit recognizes that everybody struggles and then when you find a struggling person you come alongside them and you help them and you go along with them which is exactly the word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit the parakletos the one that comes alongside the one that helps you through this struggle of life that's the way we who have the Holy Spirit are supposed to act when we see somebody who needs help we're supposed to be patient in spirit and not condemnatory in spirit and not haughty in spirit and if you have patience of spirit and if you have contentment with what God has given you and if you have satisfaction with what you actually can see instead of the things you desire and don't have your life improves right away your life gets better instantly. So do you see what Solomon's doing? After Solomon has said, don't be like the fools. After Solomon has said, everything in this lifetime is just striving against the wind. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. And then he says, the only way that things have any value is if God is in it. If God is in the middle of it, we recognize God. That's where it has any value And so if you're here on this planet for the number of years that you get and you're living out this life, do it in a way that is agreeable, that is satisfying, in a way that will make you happy. And the only way to do that is to be grateful, to be thankful, to be patient, and to uh, recognize that God who is sovereign is doing in your life exactly what he wants to do. And you're not going to change it. You got it? Got it. Okay. Did I make some sense out of that section? Yes, sir. Okay, then good. Questions? No? We're all good? I have a comment. Comment. I heard a song just today on the radio, and I was thinking of the words as you were talking. Um, I didn't ask for riches. He gave me wealth untold. The moon, the stars, the sun, the sky, and he gave me eyes to behold. Yeah. It's very much like what I was talking about. There, are, I mean, I've heard several testimonies of believers who suddenly <coughs> looked around at the creation with new eyes and realized how wonderful and awesome God is. And sometimes even we who have had the opportunity to to learn so much about God take those things for granted absolutely and we shouldn't we ought to marvel at the nighttime sky I totally agree I've had people say before that they don't like to go out and look up at the sky and see all the stars because it makes them feel so small (laughs) 
And I think just the opposite. Hey, my father owns them. My my father owns every bit of it. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm joint heir with his son. And I go out and look at it all and go, look at what my father's done. Anything else? That was a good comment, by the way. Not that I'm scoring comments, but that was a good comment. (laughs) All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.